1: Libby is taking one more day off. She plans to return to be with you tomorrow. It's time for another lively discussion with our strategy panel. Today we begin with assessing how U.S. President Donald Trump has been handling the week-long crisis in his country, fueled by the death of George Floyd, the 46-year-old black man who was restrained by the knee of a white police officer for nine minutes until he stopped moving. There have been peaceful protests, as well as violent demonstrations in big American cities over the past week against anti-Black racism and police brutality. And last night, Donald Trump warned US governors that if they don't crack down on violent protests, he as the law and order president will send in the military to stop them. Joining us as they do every Tuesday on Fight Back to discuss these epic events, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, Toronto City former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, as well as Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hello, Strat Panel. Hello, Jane. Hi, hi, Jane. Hey, Jane. Well, this is the first week we haven't led with a COVID 19 related topic, but we will get to how all of this relates to the pandemic. John, I'll begin with you and your reaction to what's happened in the United States since we all talked last week or you guys talked with Libby.
2: Well, I, I, I just, I'm not surprised of, of, of what's going on over there, I should say, Jane, in the sense that, um, you know, we keep hearing from this president, um, you know, whether it be COVID or with this uh, just tragic death of, of uh, George Floyd and, and, uh, and the things that he's trying to say and, and the fact that he's the leader of the free world, uh, and you would expect to have a leader sort of calm things down, um, incite some hope and, and, uh, and, you know, and just ensure that that we don't get into, uh, or the U.S. doesn't get into any more of, of these dangerous uh, protests that are happening, and in fact, the opposite's happening. I, you know, and I think it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that you know they're in an election year, uh, and that everything he seems to be doing, whether it's his, you know, his once daily, uh, his once daily you know, press conferences uh, dealing with COVID that turned into uh, nightmare uh, press conferences. And I think his staff rightly told him not to do them anymore on a daily basis uh, to this. Uh, is all based around the fact that he is, you know, looking at poll numbers and making decisions based around poll numbers, and I think it's extremely dangerous to say the least. Um, but it's not helping, and of course, anything that happens to the south of us trickles up and and affects us here in Canada. And I think, you know, and I'm just thankful that our leaders, from the prime minister to our premiers, um, have of a much more calmer and a much more, um, you know, just a, a different perspective when it comes to handling these issues. And I think we're we're obviously not seeing the the, the protests that are happening here as, as, as deadly or as violent as we're seeing uh, to the south of us.
1: No, not even close. And I think you're, you're right. And Karen, I'd like to hear your take on that as well. In terms of the messaging, there is relative peace in Canada because everybody is on the same message from federal, provincial, and municipal. Uh, whereas in the United States, uh, it seems as though Donald Trump has barely acknowledged George Floyd's death and the grievances of Black Americans.
3: Yeah, and I so there's a, a couple of things that are interesting that make this um, more volatile. This situation uh, when we think about a couple of years ago, four years ago, even you know Colin Kaepernick, the uh, quarterback for the San Francisco uh, team, he took a, he kneeled, took a kneel during the anthem as a, as a way of peacefully protesting what he felt was racism that existed in the United States and police brutality, and um, it ended up turning into quite a political issue, um, but it was all peaceful. But yet it didn't it didn't have the type of momentum that we see these protests having, um, not because the issues exist more, they're more tangible now than they were then. These issues have existed in the United States for decades. But I think now the difference is that more people are marginalized, more people are unemployed. Uh, the, the virus has impacted black Americans so much more substantially than, than other groups in America. And it's a powder keg. And there is, there is nothing coming from the White House that indicates any kind of order or any kind of hope or any kind of path forward through all of this. And so people, in, and every vacuum gets filled. Every void gets filled. So there is a complete vacuum, a complete void of leadership, and now it's being filled by these protests. And the, some people are out protesting legitimately for the cause of racial violence and tension in the U.S. Uh, other people are out Causing mischief, other people are out because there's nothing else to do, and so it is. It's it's become um, something that I think we need to pay attention to. Not because um, you know our leaders, of course, have taken a different tone, and we're dealing with different issues, and we're we have a different political culture up in Canada, but the types of things that are leading to the escalating protest in, in the United States could exist here, and it's something that I do think we need to pay attention to. <laughs>
1: Charles, uh, your opinion on on what's been going on over this last week?
4: Well, great comments from my colleagues. Um, I would just say that the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black Americans and Latino Americans has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has everything to do with their socioeconomic um, status and the fact that they have um, traditionally face systemic barriers that um, have kept them economically disadvantaged that have put them in very high density situations whether uh, urban apartment tenements or dwellings and systemic racism is a significant problem in the United States, and and I think we have to admit that it's a problem here in Canada. And it feels a bit like the exact same situation that's happening in long-term care homes in Ontario, which is these are problems that have been staring us in the face, hiding in plain sight, and we choose to divert our attention elsewhere, and suddenly we get a major explosion, such as what's happened in Ontario, such as what's happening in the United States vis-a-vis protests and riots and looting. And we wring our hands and think, oh, what is to be done? What is to be done? And precious little gets done. I mean, it was over 50 years ago that folks were sitting at home watching scenes of rioting on their televisions while watching uh, rockets taking off to um, lower orbit. And it just seems everything old is new again. As for Donald Trump, I mean, this whole situation is a dream. True. He, He came to office playing the politics of division, of contempt, of divisiveness, and this is right up his alley. And um it's entirely possible that this is the kind of wedge wedge issue that may actually give his almost dead campaign some breath of life, as appalling as it is to say it.
1: Interesting. Uh, we'd like your opinion as well as to how Donald Trump is handling the crisis in the U.S. The phone numbers are 416 360 toll free 1-866-744-740. John, we just had a caller phone in, didn't want to go on the air, but said that our station is too anti-Trump, or hmm. the viewpoints, I guess, in general, on fight back uh, from the guests, from the callers, too anti-Trump. Uh, is that because, as Canadians, there is an anti-Trump movement, or or is, what do you think that is? Is it an educated guest factor? What is that?
2: Well, but I, I also think too that we have certainly I have on the on this program and, and past shows, uh, given you know the president. Credit where, where credit is due, and I and I you know the pre-COVID uh, scenario with, when when the economy in the U.S. was strong and employment uh, unemployment was so low uh, in the U.S. and that the, you know the stock markets were at record highs and and empl- unemployment across all socioeconomic and, and racial um, uh, uh, groups were, were were lowest in the history. I, I was given the, the, the president credit for for taking. Uh, those positions, and also uh, for for some of the ways he's been dealing with uh, with some of the international um, our, our international players. Uh, so when the time was was there, and he was doing some some very positive things for the economy, which of course helps us here in Canada, uh, I certainly gave him credit for that. But there are certain times where you just can't give um, any leader, quite frankly, you know, credit when when it comes down to some of the things that he's been saying. And it also, I think, it's so blatant. That he's, he's, he's using a lot of the, the policies that he's doing now and, and, and over the, over the period of, of the pandemic, um, as electioneering in some ways. It, you just can't help but, but just say, look, you have to call him out when, when you have to call him out on it. But certainly I've been very supportive of some of his economic moves that he's made over the last four years of his, of his term.
1: Some around the president are likening the moment last night, his law and order moment, to 1968 when Richard Nixon ran as the law and order candidate after a summer of riots and he won the White House. Karen, is there ever a place for a law and order stance? And could this be it if it was handled differently? It, 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 certainly,
3: I think there are times for law and order. Uh, I, I think that when you, we have longstanding grievances like we have uh, like we're seeing in the U.S., um, then then a different approach is needed. And as I say, that you know the challenge that, that Trump faces is the challenge that we faced when we had the, the protesters blockading um, for the Whittenton community that were against the pipeline, and that it wasn't. It's not a, a unified block of protesters, and that's what Donald Trump is experiencing and what governors are experiencing in in the cities that are having the unrest. It's not. You can't, you can't negotiate or you can't talk to the protesters because it's not a unified voice. There's a number of people protesting a number of things. And so if, you, if it was just a bunch of hooligans causing property damage, yeah, a law and order approach is absolutely the right approach. Lock them up, say, like, you can't do that anymore. That's not that self-destructive behavior and it's damaging communities. But for the peaceful protesters that are protesting decades of discrimination that have led to a, a, a state that is not sustainable, and that, that cannot be ignored. And that's not the law and order approach that is needed in order to to bring resolution to the the conflicts and the issues that have just been so prevalent since Nixon got elected.
1: That's really clear to me, the way that you position that. Charles, uh, is there a way to ride that line? I mean, to get the hooligans under control and yet still provide empathy for those who feel disenfranchised?
4: Well, one of the challenges is that what's at issue at the moment is the role of law enforcement in the United States, specifically um, local police departments. And, it, you know, it's been really heartening to see a number of um, police officers actually marching with protesters, engaging protesters. I mean, that's the kind of thing that gives you hope for the future. But what we're really talking about fundamentally in terms of needed reforms is an end to racial profiling, an end to certain type of chokeholds, an end to what boils down to legal murder in the case of some police and how they conduct themselves uh, when it comes to um, black suspects. Um, You know, Anyone who you don't know who's carrying a gun and who has a right to pull it on you, that should be of concern to anybody. Um, obviously, in Canada, we're blessed by the fact that we have just amazing men and women who serve in law enforcement. But unfortunately, in the United States, we have seen instances of what could be termed um, legal execution. And I think what happened last week in Minneapolis may very well be an example of that The difference being it was for all the world to see. As for Donald Trump, I mean, every president in the history of the United States has generally had to face a crisis over the course of his presidency. Trump was remarkably free of this, uh, inherited a booming economy, a booming stock market from Barack Obama in 2017, and lo and behold, it's 2020, it's an election year, and he has not one, but two massive crises, which is to say COVID-19 and the completely inadequate response on the part of the, the federal government in the United States. And now, um, the whole, the politics of race torn open for the whole world to see. And his deficiencies as president are shining through. And all he has left is to, to return to that card of divisiveness and wedge politics and frankly, hate and it only remains to be seen whether it's going to work for them this November.
1: It's our Tuesday strategy panel here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, John Capobianco, Charles Bird, Karen Stintz are with us uh, for the remainder of the half hour, and you want to get in on the conversation as well. That's great. We'll go to the phone lines now, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Pat in Toronto, go ahead. You're on the air.
5: Good morning. I'm... I mean, the demonstration last night and the, uh, the one that was peaceful across from the White House and then what uh, Trump had his, uh, his goons do is so, so, so wrong. Um, my take on all of it, there's too much of a difference between the, between the haves and the have-nots in the U.S. And one thing I think they need to do, if, if soon soon Biden gets in, they have to have some degree of socialized medicine. Because the people at the bottom can't afford medical help, and therefore they have a much lower life expectancy, and that just leads to despair. So that's my two cents worth with regard to what they might do, what they should do, assuming we get somebody elected who cares about this uh, dissension between the rich and the poor.
1: All right, Pat, thank you for calling in. Uh, That takes us to to Joe Biden, really, the Democratic presidential candidate. Um, He has promised to address institutional racism in his first 100 days in office. He met in person with black leaders in Delaware, held a virtual meeting with big city mayors, and his quote... Uh, Biden says hate emerges when you have somebody in power who breathes oxygen into people. John, in terms of and you are all strategists in terms of strategy and yet coming across as sincere and empathetic and believing what he's saying. How should Joe Biden conduct himself over these next five months?
2: Well, carefully, and and I think his biggest challenge is that he's got an opponent um, that he's probably never seen uh, or had to deal with in his in his political career and that of donald trump uh and the fact that donald um that the that donald trump can be so unpredictable uh as a political opponent i think will will continually throw joe biden off and i think you know joe is not um you know uh, uh, he's had his own gas that he's had to deal with and 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 issues that he's um, you know, it 's to have to be atoned to over the course of the last number of years, let alone the last, you know, during the presidential debate for the Democrats that he's going to have to deal with uh, quite significantly. But I think, you know, obviously this is an area where the Democrats would probably do a lot better than the Republicans, no matter who was leading the Republicans. In the case of that you know, we've got Donald Trump now, it just exasperates the issue more. But but it does seem to seem that that Joe uh, and the fact that he was vice president to Barack Obama. Uh, certainly helped him uh, in, with, with the black community, not only f- for his presidential run, but I'm sure uh, for his nomination to, to, to be the candidate, but also for his presidential run uh, to, to November. So that'll be a huge benefit to Joe. Um, but I don't think he's got to watch what he says. And, and, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but in an interview, he said something about, you know, you, you have to be black to vote for me, or if you're not, uh, if, you're, if you're black and you don't vote for me, then you're not really black. I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing. Yeah, Jane, but, if, if you, but you vote
1: for people, Trump, you're not black. Yeah, those kinds of comments
2: uh, where you take for granted uh, any block of voters, quite frankly, or any any group of voters, it can be quite damaging uh, in in some way. So I think he's got to be cautious about how he deals with this issue. I think he's prone to to gas, which could cost him, and never underestimate Donald Trump and his supporters. I, I think that, you know, I think Karen made the point that uh, you know, this this issue uh, him being a law and order and inciting and, and uh, fear would probably solidify his base in some ways. And that could be very, very uh, beneficial to him in a, in a presidential election that is based on electoral college votes, not popular votes.
1: Well, Karen, we know that Republican voters are much more likely to go and vote, mm-hmm. uh, to, and that will be a benefit for Donald Trump than uh, Democratic supporters.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that uh, for Joe Biden, I, I think there's no value for him going toe to toe with Donald Trump, and he's got to find a new platform and a new way to uh, express where he's going. And I know that whole adage, you know, take the high road and all that, that's not really the issue. The issue is that Donald Trump has no barrier; like he has no filter. He he will he will push and push and push beyond where Joe Biden will ever be able to go. So he will always lose against Donald Trump because Donald Trump has. He, he just, he, he, he will not stop. And so they, their strategy team has to be very um, thoughtful of how do, how do you ha- find your issue that you can campaign on and rally on and rally the American people on that, that describes and um, basically, you know, it, it's against Donald Trump, but not because you're not actually going against the man. You're going against all the things that he represents, but never mention the man because you, you'll never win.
1: Charles, how does that sound to you in terms of strategy for Joe Biden? Um, um,
4: American politics tends to be a little more complicated than that. Um, I would point to the Democratic nomination because following Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada, most observers thought that Joe Biden's candidacy was dead. He was unable to raise money. He had no tangible organization on the ground. He had no advertising on television or radio or the Internet, as opposed to uh, his fellow contenders, who had been doing extremely well in the nomination process, up to South Carolina. And then South Carolina changed everything. That really was the, um, uh, the firewall that, Biden had always talked about. But what's more remarkable is that three days later, even in the absence of all the things I've talked about, presence, money, advertising, organizers, Super Tuesday, he absolutely dominated. And it speaks to the fact that Joe Biden, after eight years in the Congress and eight years as vice president of the United States, has formed a very profound link with a great many Americans. Some of whom are Republicans, some of whom are in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio, really key battleground states. And they look at Joe Biden and they think, um, here's a guy who gets me. Here's a guy who's had his share of suffering in life. Here's a guy who uh, knows what it's like to, to be down and out and who understands that you always keep fighting. And that's important. As for Donald Trump. His reelection is dependent on a very, very complex um, set of calculations. Uh, You'll recall that, you know, in the face of Russian intrusion in the 2016 campaign, which most observers believe was in favor of Trump, Um, Trump set out to set up this notion that it was actually Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, who had colluded with the government of Ukraine to interfere in the 2016 election. It wasn't the Russians at all. It was Ukraine. And that got Donald Trump impeached, right? But that won't stop him this time. His play this time will be that COVID-19 came straight out of a Chinese lab. It was done on purpose was done with the support of the World Health Organization. The U.S. deep state was all over it. And Joe Biden was their willing dupe.
1: I want to. Sorry, and, go ahead.
4: What, and all Biden has to do is just he's got to remember one phrase, which he's got to say over and over again, which is Donald Trump's an idiot. Don't buy it.
1: I want to get uh, to the pandemic in relation to the crisis that's been happening in the U.S. over the last week, but I know you want to get in on the conversation as well. 416 toll-free 866 740 Let's go to Barry in North York. What would you like to add, Barry? Good afternoon, Jane and guests. How are you doing? Fine. Go ahead. Um,
6: I have a suggestion that for everyone to flood the Internet with positive accomplishments of Black people, we'd start off with Black, and then we go with um, Jewish people because they're being uh, uh, they're being uh, attacked lately as well. But start off with Black people and inventions. It's real easy to do. I, uh, a friend of mine suggests I start off with Maya Angelou, and um, the internet is very very powerful. So I figure that if we get that out, then people will say, you know what? Wow, look at what they've done. So they may change their attitude. I mean, with the United States president still still thinking that Africa is a country, there are a lot of other people out there that still think that too. Um, I have a friend of mine who said, it's not? And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> um, so... We need to get that information out and change people's attitudes. What do you think of that?
1: Thank you, Barry. Thanks for your call. Let's go to Joe in Waynefleet. Joe, go ahead. I'm on. Yeah, you're on.
5: Hello, uh, Jane. Um, I'm just um, wondering uh, if um, there's a lot of uh, signage out by the protesters uh, with all kinds of uh, signs and so on. I, I'd like to see a sign out by the police department saying, uh, Uh, protesting yes Uh, destruction no Uh, this would uh, indicate that I'm appalled at the uh, the amount of destruction of private and government property and police cruisers and so on and this would be a statement by the police to uh, stop the destruction of buildings it's terrible to see vandalism and people videoed smashing windows and everything, and no one seems to be stopping them. So I think I'd like to see a sign out, that and the police should enforce that, that they will allow protesting, but they will not allow destruction.
1: Okay, Joe, thanks for your call. I want to ask our strategy panelists, John Capabianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Bird, about why you think Donald Trump is not invoking the pandemic as a reason to stay home. He's not even mentioning it, John.
2: No, and I think that he's he's probably pivoting, and, and obviously just given given the fact that, that you know the riots are happening, and, and, and he's playing, I guess, to his political base on this, which is to say that, you know, uh, he, he, he says he's, a, he's an ally of, of peaceful protests, I believe is what he said in, in his statement yesterday, um, but condemns, of course, as we all condemn, and all the violence that comes out of it. And I think your previous caller, when he said about destruction, no, and, and peaceful protests, yes, that's the challenge with protests that we face, uh, not only here in Canada, but anywhere where, you know, there are peaceful protesters who have the right to, to, to protest and do so peacefully. But there's always, no matter if it's the G7 protests or if it's, you know, this kind of protest, there's a small group of them that, that use protests to be able to show anarchy and, and, and smash buildings. And, and that that really leaves a bad taste with with everybody who wants to protest. And I think that's where Donald Trump is is sort of, you know, picking on and trying to sort of, you know, play his on his political base uh, in a very uncalculated way. Uh, But quite frankly, it damages all of us.
1: But but shouldn't protests be prohibited, period, because it's gatherings of large amounts of people during this crisis? I mean, the messaging has been there for nearly three months now, and it's all going to hell in a handbag, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen, I mean, Dr. Tam said yesterday, our chief public health officer, protesters need to find another way to protest during the pandemic.
3: Yeah. And I think part of the reason that Trump isn't wading in on that um, aspect of it is because he doesn't have any legitimacy to make that claim with respect to COVID. Um, all of his um, back and forth and whether people should wear masks or not wear masks, and he's going to shake hands on the campaign trail, and he's encouraging um, people to, you know, return to work by a certain time. So, the messaging that's been coming from Donald Trump is that uh, that the virus is is not as um, dangerous as one would thinks that you know he hasn't been really been making a big stand on you need to stay home you need to social distance you need to take these steps. So for him to come out now and use the virus as a way to keep people from protesting, I think his his own base
1: would find that inconsistent. Uh, I- Charles, is there any way around this? I mean, we were all outraged a week ago over Trinity Bellwoods when everybody got together in a Woodstock-like gathering. But then when there was the protest and it was peaceful uh, for um, Regis Korchinski-Paquet on the weekend, people were wearing masks, but not everybody, and marching shoulder to shoulder. Uh, right now, there's a state of emergency in the province of Ontario where people, f- five or more people cannot gather. Why are we not invo- why are our leaders not invoking the the COVID-19 crisis as a reason to put your protests on hold?
4: Well, fundamentally there's a big difference between folks gathering on a beach or gathering on a park or as opposed to gathering for means of uh, legitimate protest. And you know, when I know Jane when when what when my wife and I have to figure out groceries in the midst of this pandemic, it's like a two hour strategy meeting in terms of how's this going to work and we're going to disinfect, uh, whatever comes through the door, et cetera, et cetera. So for a lot of protesters who were out there, they would have been well aware of the risks. They would have understandably been just as afraid of contracting COVID-19 as any sensible person would be. And yet they felt the issues at stake were such that they had to go out and they had to make their voices heard and they had to protest. And this has nothing to do with the rioters or the looters or the, the instigators, or the rabble rousers. This has to do with Americans and Canadians who feel that they need to make their voices heard. And that's uh, and that's really the answer to the question, which is to say you cannot for any reason suppress legitimate protest in a democracy. Even a pandemic isn't enough of a reason to do that. Okay. It comes down to the choice of the individual.
1: Fair enough. I want to ask you each uh, before we sign off for this week uh, with our strategy panel, if you were listening to Bob Comstock's news there at noon, he ran a clip of Justin Trudeau sidestepping the question uh, about why he's not being critical of Donald Trump or why he's not commenting on the way Donald Trump is handling um, these protests and demonstrations, the violent ones, in, a, in this law and order type of way. Is that the right response, John, from Justin Trudeau, the, the head of another country?
2: No, I, you know what, I'm of two minds. I, I, there's a sense of weakness, I think, that, that, that the Justin, Justin Trudeau has, has displayed when it comes to attacking uh, the U.S. I think, you know, he needs to, as a, as a, as a leader of a, G, of a powerful nation, of a G7 nation, he needs to be able to call out other leaders when they need to. Um, I think he's consistently not done that. And I think, um, so from that perspective, I'm disappointed. But I also understand that, that he, he, he'll get attacked by, by Donald Trump. We've seen that happen in the past. Uh, and he obviously wants to avoid that, you know, given the fact that, you know, it's an election year in the U.S. and also prime ministers in a, in a minority government. And I think he's being careful with respect to what he says uh, that, might, that might inflame some, some sort of response from, from the
3: president.
1: What about you, Karen? What are your thoughts on that? I
3: think that he should put his head down and say nothing at all, to be honest with you, because there's no gain for him or Canada for him to comment on the race relations and the rioting in the United States. We have enough issues domestically. We have our own battle going on with China as a result of the extradition hearing with um, the Huawei executive. Like we, there's enough going on that we don't need to pick another battle. And so, if we can avoid this one, this is not our battle to pick. And so, on that, on that one, uh, I think he just, I think he did took the right tone and did the right thing.
1: Charles, you have the final comment.
4: Wow, I mean, you can imagine being the prime minister and taking that question and taking the amount of time he did before he responded really suggests that he was thinking long and hard about what he wanted to say and what he should say. I don't see it as a sign of weakness at all. I disagree with John in that, in that regard. I, I think Karen's absolutely right. This goes back to the great Canadian tradition of quiet diplomacy, which is to say, Canada and the United States have traditionally had a highly respectful relationship, notably between our leaders. Obviously, we have a freak show in the White House now, so we have to be extra careful. The quiet diplomacy is rooted in the fact that behind closed doors, we can be as blunt as we like, and we can often be a conduit to the rest of the world, to whoever occupies the Oval Office, assuming they're not you know, criminally insane.
1: We, you were good right up to the last comment there, Charles.
4: Oh, I want to make my feelings known to all your viewers. you're looking for anti-Trump, you found it.
1: Libby said to me today, watch Charles. Sometimes he goes over the line. Criminally insane. You think that's pushing it a bit? It might be pushing it, but we take your point. Uh, thank you, all three of you. Uh, Libby, will look forward to speaking with you next Tuesday. Thanks, Jane. Thanks,
0: Jane. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.